Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? How secure is this place anyway? Very excited to talk to our guest today. Before we introduce him, I want to make sure you know who the voices are on this podcast. So I'm Richard Litauer, your host. Hello, everyone. And we also have, as usual, our standing standard guest host, Justin Dorfman. Justin, how are you doing? Doing great. How are you? Doing good. Good to have you. And calling in today from New York City, we have Dustin Ingram. Dustin, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. Sweet. Super excited to have you on today. Dustin is a staff software engineer at Google. He's on Google's open source security team, where he works on improving the security of open source software that Google and the rest of the world relies on. He's also a director of the PSF, the Python Software Foundation, and a maintainer of the Python Package Index. So a bit of an experienced person, definitely knows what's going on when we talk about security. Dustin, can you give me a just a short understanding of what the open source security team does at Google? How many people are you? What's your remit? What's going on there? Yeah, we have, I think, about 50 people now. So this is a team that was created just recently, about a year and a half ago at Google. Didn't really exist before. I mean, obviously, we have lots of open source teams, but no teams that were just focused on open source security. And it is a bit of an unusual team at Google because we're an entirely external facing team. We are focused on landing changes in many software ecosystems to improve the security of those open source ecosystems. So we don't have products, we don't have revenue, but our goal is just to essentially take a lot of what we've learned about consuming and using open source inside of Google and externalize it and make it something that other people can use as well. That is massive. I had no idea that you had so many people on that already. That's amazing. How do you prioritize which packages to work on, which security bugs to work on? How does that work? Yeah. So, I mean, the team has a couple different focus areas. It's not really necessarily about finding and fixing vulnerabilities like Chrome's vulnerability program or something like that. We have a couple different areas. So one is we have an area around software integrity. And so if you're familiar with the SigStore project, this is a team, a lot of folks that maintain and work on that project help develop it, clients around it, that kind of thing. Just focus on integrity, like making sure that the software you want to get is what you're actually getting. We have a team that does vulnerability management remediation. They run the open source vulnerability service, osv.dev. And so they're just focused on kind of vacuuming up every vulnerability that is known on the ecosystem and then like providing tools that you can quickly determine if you're affected by a given vulnerability. And then we also have like a vulnerability discovery team that does fuzzing essentially. So it's our open source fuzzing team. And they do a whole bunch of other stuff. We also have a Linux kernel team. So those are folks that work like entirely on the Linux kernel, which is above my period. I'm not entirely sure what they do, but they do some really interesting security stuff with that. And then we kind of broadly work on things like U.S. government policy. So we've contributed to some of the recent acts and things like that in some ways. And also funding. Like We find all sorts of ways to fund open source, figure out where the gaps are, and make sure that things are getting fixed and prioritized and taken care of. So... Are you working at all on the Bill 4913, Securing Open Source Act of 2022? Yeah, so what basically happened was after Log4j, the government got really spooked and they're like, oh, we don't really know what software we're consuming. And so President Biden did an executive order, 14028, I think, on securing a nation's cybersecurity. And that was just about like setting a policy for how the government should consume open source. And so then we, as Google, has contributed to the White House in order to like set some direction there, give them some insight, give them some knowledge of how the industry does best practices and things like that. And many other organizations have as well. And similarly with open source software acts and things like that, these are things about the way the government consumes software. And we want to make sure that 
as one of the largest consumers of open source, that the government is essentially doing the same thing that Google does, that everyone else does, and is secure as a result. Got it. I heard you brought up earlier SigStore. Now, I know Dan Lawrence, who used to be at Google, is heavily involved in that project. What is Google's role in keeping that project? I believe it's an open SSF project now, but what is Google's role in making sure that's adopted more heavily in the supply chain? Yeah, great question. So one of the other co-creators of SigStore, Dan Lawrence is one of them, Luke Hines and Bob Calloway. Bob is now at Google as well, and he leads our software and supply chain integrity team. So there's a bunch of folks there that are similar to Dan's team, just work full time on keeping the transparency log up and running, keeping the certificate authority up and running, all the other bits and pieces that make up SigStore. And then also we have teams that maintain the client library. So we now have SigStore clients for like Python, Java, Node, Rust, and then there's a Go one coming soon including Cosign, which is the original client that's mostly focused on signing container images. So our team sort of shares the burden of maintaining all those things, making plans for infrastructure changes. So we just went GA with SigStore. So there's a whole lot of work around finishing up things, productionizing it. We have an on-call rotation now for SigStore, which is super cool and just makes the service even more resilient and production grade. Is there like a arbitrary SLA that you're trying to keep up? Yeah, I mean, obviously we all have Paying customers for SigStore, it's a totally free use open source project, but there's public service and we want it to be somewhat reliable. So yeah, we have a kind of internal SLA for what we're hoping to achieve and nothing's going to hold us to that, but that, right. that's our goal. So yeah. That's awesome. Well that so far. Yeah. That's great. Great to hear. This is awesome. I'm really curious about the like long-term planning for SigStore and OSV. Say like it's not necessarily fundraising. It doesn't bring money in. Is Google... Committed to just hosting these indefinitely, or are you working on other ways of making sure that these projects like stick together and are around for the long haul? Yeah, I mean, so to be clear, Google doesn't host these. These are projects of the Open Source Software Security Foundation. So SigStore has been for okay, a long cool. time. And that organization is kind of the umbrella organization that allows us to collaborate with a bunch of other vendors like Microsoft, GitHub, whatever, but also find a home for these projects. And that organization is essentially responsible for finding the funding to keep these up and running. Obviously, Google contributes heavily to the ongoing budget of the OpenSSF, and so is all these other organizations that are member organizations. But yeah, those are their, sort of the model for how we're going to keep it running. Cool. I'm kind of curious about entry points. So if I'm a large organization, I assume I can talk to you and figure out how many devs I can put on my team to help out and so forth. If I'm a small open source maintainer or small group of maintainers working on an open source project, are any of these things actually relevant to me? Like, are there things I should know about SigStore? Is there any way like I can make my code more reliable by like going to these sites and talking to people? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it really depends on the ecosystem. So we're kind of pushing for adoption and standardization in a bunch of different ecosystems. So the goal is, for example, with SigStore, we want signing to be available by default for everyone with the canonical tools, be able to publish signatures in the canonical repositories. And we're moving towards that. There's recently an RFC for NPM um, to build provenance, sign that with SigStore and have that be part of the NPM spec. And that's, as far as I'm aware, that's moving forward. You know, you asked about sort of individual maintainers. Our goal is to kind of do security by default. So individual maintainers might not really have to think too much about adopting these new things because we want them to be really sort of easily adoptable or integrated into existing workflows. But that said, like, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't just happen automatically that will require maintainer changes. And like, I'm an open source maintainer too, right? Like I know that most maintainers are volunteers. They don't necessarily have time to even hit the high priority stuff, let alone 
maybe a slight benefit security improvement. We also do some other things to make that a little more easy for open source maintainers to adopt these technologies. One thing is we have a kind of a rewards program called SOS.dev. And that's a way that maintainers can get essentially get paid for doing what we feel is relevant security work. There's a couple of things that are part of the OpenSSF scorecard project. And essentially, if you do those things, you can go to SOS.dev and apply and get paid. And we've pulled out a, a large sum already this year, and we have a lot more money to go away still too. We also have a team inside of Ghost that is essentially a team of full-time open source contributors, and they're just focused on adding and providing support for all these like kind of somewhat critical open source packages that a lot of people rely on that might not have, might have gaps in maintainership or might want additional systems with adopting security things. So they go and file issues and things and ask, hey, do you need any help? Do you want to adopt this? Do you want to adopt that? We'll do the work. Just let us know if you want it or not. And then, you know, they say yes or no. And then we go and we make the pull requests and we work with the maintainers and join the mailing list and essentially like really try to participate as true maintainers, not just like drive-by pull requests. So that includes following up when things break in the future and upgrading versions and things like that. Again, I kind of just want to know, how do you prioritize that? I mean, there are thousands and thousands of projects. So how do you choose which ones are the most important and where you're going to dedicate developer time to do that work? Yeah, it's a long list. So there's a couple of different ways. So, you know, all ecosystems have some sort of rough metrics around downloads and that sort of is a a very bad but decent approximation of popularity and importance. It gives you a sense of how often something's getting installed. So in terms of like impact, if something goes wrong, that's sort of one way to measure it. And we take that into account. The OpenSSF also has a criticality sort of measurement, right? A criticality score that it maintains. And so this is sort of like complex mathematical function that takes in a bunch of factors about the open source project, its health and things like that. And essentially ranks everything that it knows about in terms of criticality. We take that into account, but you know, that's like somewhat subjective and you know, that list can change at any given time based on how the, the algorithm is tweaked or whatever. And then we also have the open source projects that Google itself depends on. So we're a little bit biased here because we also really care about securing the stuff that we use. So those also rank highly in terms of what we want to focus on the most. Generally, it's going to align with both critical for the open source ecosystem and critical for Google, which are generally the same, but there are some things that don't overlap there. Can you talk about any instances where they didn't overlap? I don't have any specific projects off the top of my mind. I mean, obviously there is maybe like languages or ecosystems that are less widely used inside of Google that are much more popular externally. Those things, we still consider those to be important. They're just not on Google's hit list. So you don't just work at Google. You also are a director of the PSF and you work on the Python package index. Can you talk to me a bit about what that is for listeners who aren't aware? The Python package index is the canonical software repository for the Python ecosystem. It's also one of the oldest language ecosystem software repositories, predates a lot of the other ones. When you say canonical, you don't mean the company canonical, you mean the de facto standard. Yeah, like the standard centralized repository. Yeah, absolutely. There's lots of other companies that offer Python repository products, and those are not PyPI. PyPI is like the single repository maintained by the Python Software Foundation that anybody can publish to and is fully open, no private stuff or anything like that. How many directors does the PSF have? Because I know the PSF is different than the Python package index, but it's somewhat related. So I'm just curious, like how much do you interface with Deb or the other partner? The package index is one of many projects of the PSF. The most prominent one is Python itself, but PyPI is definitely up there. There are 11 elected directors on the board. Deb and our legal counsel also sit on the board as well. So technically 13 of us, but 
I work with Deb on a day-to-day basis, more or less when I'm doing PSF stuff. And I was involved in her hiring. She's just recently joined the PSF. And we're very excited to have her. And it's been really great so far. One thing I kind of broke my heart and was just kind of frustrating was seeing the backlash that happened during the mandatory multi-factor authentication for the critical projects. Were you expecting that? And if either way, like how did you deal with the fallout? Yeah, it's interesting actually, because the way you say it kind of belies a problem that we had with our launch. So you sort of said like the mandatory 2FA thing, but like actually nothing has been enforced yet, right? There's no mandatory 2FA. All we were doing was announcing that we would start considering some projects to be critical. Again, like this is how PyPI measures criticality. It's slightly different than everyone else. But uh, yeah, we marked some percentage of packages as critical. And then we were giving away free security keys so people could use strong 2FA instead of just uh, TOTP with their phones. And yeah, I think the thing that really went wrong is that we're a team of volunteers and no one really knows anything about communications or marketing. And we didn't really convey that message super well. So we weren't really fully expecting as much pushback as we got. But also, like, I think people are just also somewhat opposed to change. And like anything that sort of feels like an additional burden to open source maintainers, I totally get it. Like any amount of extra toil or work should be avoided at all costs. So for us, there's a trade-off because PyPA, like when there is a compromised account, like that's a tremendous amount of work for us. We have to go and find it respond to the reports, do some investigation, freeze the account, figure out if it's published anything malicious. Like it's a lot of work for us. So we're heavily incentivized to try and minimize that as much as possible and also just sort of maintain the integrity of the package index as a result. But we just want to actually protect the users and also like we don't have a support team. We don't have full-time engineers. Help us out by just locking down your account a little bit more to reduce that burden for us. Totally. And I think that was probably the issue was the communication, to be honest. And hope that doesn't come off like I'm attacking anyone or you or your group. Not at all. Yeah. So I think one thing that we saw, which was really unfortunate, where there was a few people that were just being snarky and be like, they just delete their project and say, look, it's not critical anymore. You know, and I just like, can you please just grow up, sir? Like, it was just, I don't know. I just thought as a community, like really, especially nowadays, just with security being such an issue with the open source supply chain, just don't understand the pushback. And then at the same time, I do understand because it's like, okay, yeah, they're volunteers. They probably only do pull requests when it's like needed. So like to add another step into their release process. So I I get it and I don't get it. It's unfortunate, but I hope we can all come together. It just becomes more of the norm of just, hey, security by default, you know, built in, not built on. Yeah, there was only really one example of someone whose project had been marked as critical, which again, like nothing happened as a result. They weren't required to do anything. We just said sometime in the future, we might start enabling 2FA for your account. I think there's only one instance where they went and deleted the project. And I mean, to be clear, like that is 100% the option of the maintainer to do that, right? Like no one is requiring them to publish or maintain support on PyPI. And if they want to go and nuke it and like break all their users, which is exactly what happened, yeah, they're fully allowed to do that. There's not really like much I can do to stop them in that regard if that's what their intent is. But there was like one comment that I was reading when all this was happening, which is that like, why would you publish something on PyPI in the first place if you weren't interested in reaping the benefits of success? Like the whole point is to share and have people reuse your code and potentially like save them some time and sort of give them that gift. 
But like at the point where your thing becomes so popular, why would you be opposed to and take that gift away? So yeah, you know, exactly. I, I don't agree with it. It's not something I'd want to do, but I've spent a lot of time like being careful not to break users. And I think this is just doesn't fully align with how I would respond. When I think about security, I often ask this question to myself, like security for whom? Is it security for Google, security for the United States, is security for the users of my package, is security for more than that? And it's something that I feel is important when we're asking maintainers to do more work. Obviously, they don't have to do that work. They don't have to do anything, right? They can just sit there and release stuff open source and go about their day, which is one approach. Deleting stuff is also another approach that you're allowed to take as an open source maintainer of a package, or at least as the admin of a package. I wonder, have you put a lot of thought into different grades of where security exists and like, who's it for? In general, my work on the Python package index, the goal is that the average user is not a security expert, but they absolutely can benefit from more secure tools and more secure ecosystems. So my goal is essentially to provide that security to them by default so that they don't have to like think or really understand when they adopt security practices. That said, like things like 2FA, they do require some level of education and it is an increased support. So there's a reason why we didn't say we're going to turn on 2FA for everybody on Pipe yet because that'd be ludicrous, right? But we did actually did this. We said 1% of packages, which is a very small fraction of users and maintainers. But actually, in reality, if you looked at the graph of it, that 1% of packages is responsible for like 90 something percent of traffic on Pipe yet. So we're sort of trying to balance the burden with the potential impact of something were to go wrong, right? If one of these projects were to be compromised, how many people would be then compromised as a result, potentially if something bad or malicious was published? And, you know, it's not really purely speculation either. Like we've seen these things happen. As a maintainer of the package index, I'm constantly trying to like balance that security with that usability aspect. Have you all thought about a 10 to 50 year plan for what happens when these maintainers are going to move on and do other things and just not be around anymore? How do we harden our systems when people are naturally going to age out of the process of developing it all? Yeah, that's a really good question. And actually, like, it, I haven't been asked something like this before, but this is something that we think about a lot, actually. And the goal for PyPI is to keep it all mud forever, like PyPI 100 years, right? So there are like longer term plans there in terms of us thinking about ourselves as more of an archive and making sure stuff keep, stays around indefinitely. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely the potential to have you know, a bit rot over the years. But in reality, like PyPI's package is going back essentially to its inception, which is extremely old at this point. And no one really uses those, right? They're not really compatible with a modern ecosystem. So they're kind of just there as historical artifacts at this point. But yeah, we think about that all the time. And, you know, as we add security things, I imagine that there will be a point at which an account that hasn't been around or been logged into for like five to 10 years, and if it's something like it's a login, we're going to treat that as suspicious and probably scrutinize that pretty heavily. Are there plans going forth around education for maintainers and communities about how to onboard new maintainers, how to increase security without increasing load time for the maintainers working on their projects? Like, how do you harden the communities themselves as opposed to the packages? Yeah, that's not something that I've been really too involved in, either from the PSF or from Google side of things either. It's a great point because, you know, an often concern is that maintainers are sole maintainers or there's too few of them. But I don't see like a lot of resources for maintainers to find other maintainers, to build trust in other maintainers. Like a lot of projects don't have the path to maintainership document. So even for PyPI, right? Like there's three of us that are core administrators and we're just kind of in the process of bringing on a fourth one right now. And there's no process for that. Like we have nothing to find or document. It's essentially figure it out yourself, 
poke people until you get access, like that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I think the more projects can sort of build programs around how to grow maintainers themselves, the better that could be for them. But yeah, I think those resources have to come from elsewhere as well. So I'm thinking about the Securing Open Source Software Act. I think you may actually have more knowledge about this than I am. Can you give a brief summary of what it is? Yeah, so this is an act, bipartisan act introduced by Senator Peters and Senator Portman. And it's essentially the government setting direction for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency director. So I think maybe one misconception about this act that I want to just get out of the way is that it's not at all about regulating open source has no bearing on what people do with open source directly or how people consume open source directly, unless you're the U.S. government. It's really only about setting a policy to ensure that the U.S. government is consuming open source in a more safe and secure way. And I think people, maybe this is surprising, maybe it isn't, but like the U.S. government consumes a lot of open source software. Like they really have a dependency on a lot more than most large companies that you can think of. So this is really important for them. And they want to continue using open source, right? Like the answer to Log4J is, is not stop using open source. It's to get better practices around determining what you have and just do industry best practices for finding and fixing vulnerabilities. So because they're the U.S. government, they have to set this policy via law. So this is one of the laws that they've introduced to, to set it. And the kind of the goal is to tell the CISA director to support open source across all the federal agencies, coordinate support across those agencies, do supply chain security efforts. They're going to put together some framework that they're going to use for risk assessment. So essentially for all these different and very separate government agencies to sort of align them on how good or bad of a job they're doing right now. And then, you know, be able to publish that as open source software as well, and then use that to sort of better their programs. Back when proprietary software was king, people would say open source is the future and many laughed. Now that open source is the king or whatever, the dominant distribution. At what point do you think that the government or just large institutions just go like, I don't think open source is working anymore. We need to go back. Is that something that could happen? Or do you think it'd be changing an engine going 100 miles an hour on the freeway kind of situation? I sure hope not. And I think like the actual metaphor there would be like, changing an engine that's been in production for a hundred years with one that's been built in someone's garage shop and like no one else has ever seen or built with and like doesn't work with off the shelf parts. I think that's the real strength of open source is that it's gotten a lot of very diverse contribution over the years from lots of different people and organizations, you know, obviously depending on the project, but generally that's true. And then also a lot of scrutiny, arguably more scrutiny than most closed source applications get. So yeah, I think in terms of a business case, Unless you're protecting some PII or secret sauce or something like that, like, yeah, it probably doesn't make sense to open source that. But generally, like consuming and using open source, you're going to get better bang for your buck because there's not much buck and there's probably a lot more bang. And thinking about the U.S. government, I think three of us are American, but this also applies to other governments and other places in the world because they're watching very closely what's happening in the U.S. And thinking about the U.S. government trying to secure their supply chain, trying to also secure the supply chain for the American population because the government has dual interests, right? It's also around to exist for itself and it's around to help out with the economy of the U.S., which is kind of a strange thing to think about. When we talk about securing, I think that their main entry point for doing that is kind of twofold. One of them is to figure out what they're using themselves and how do you make sure that we have things backed up so we can go back to other repos if, you know, a thing happens and we can figure out like security instances and solve them for our own dependencies. 
but also working with future maintainers, working with code packages, working with foundations to try to figure out how do we secure the ecosystem at large because they can't do all of the work. So I guess I have a two-part question. One, does that sound accurate to you? And two, do you see any way for the government to like try and secure open source and try to not regulate it, but like figure out how to manage with it without the help of foundations, without the help of package managers? Interesting. My biggest gripe about the act as it is right now is that there's nothing in there about providing any support or specifically funding to the open source projects that are being used. And really, I know I found that <laughs> it's surprising, right? That's in my experience, the best way to get better open source software. And I think they're being very reactive to log4j and related vulnerabilities. And that makes sense. Like you're not going to, uh, well, I mean, I don't know. You could pay people to do crazy audits and maybe avoid a log4j, but to them, like, I think the paying for support and stuff paying for maintainers doesn't quite equate to a, a better outcome in the context of the bill. That said, I think that they were wrong because I've seen the government really do this successfully. So the Open Tech Fund is a government yeah. nonprofit that gives money directly to many open source projects. Pipeline has directly benefited from this before and previous project got a grant to do a bunch of great work and it's super successful. Like the one thing the government I think does really well is give away money. And especially in tech, like they can be doing a much better job of this, especially in open source. I would really like to see them work with software foundations who I think should be trusted as the people who can determine where the money should go, right? Like funnel it through the software foundations. Obviously I'm biased because I'm on the board of a software foundation, but like we're deep in our ecosystem. Like if you want to make improvements to the Python ecosystem, that's who you call. So I think there is a potential for a partnership there, but yeah, there has to be some carve out for like, okay, the government has enumerated everything that it uses. What are you doing to support it, right? Love that answer. Love it. I know this is the first time you've been on this podcast, which is, is cool. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. This is great. So Stain is an interesting movement. We started a few years ago with these conferences where we're talking about, hey, how do we sustain open source? What's going on? Then this podcast grew out of that. And now in a few, this is almost, I think it's why it actually be episode 150 at this point, which is pretty intense and cool. Congrats. Yeah. Thanks. The reason I bring that up is because sustainability is a really weird term. It's an awful term. It means everything and nothing at the same time. And one of the things I'm really curious about is whether sustainability as a term makes any sense apart from security. This is all focused on security and security. Security is like, yes, so let's make sure things are hard and so that things break, we can fix them or that ideally things don't break at all. And I'm realizing there's a huge gap between security and sustainability. And one of those gaps could be just as you pointed out, none of the money from the Secure Open Software Act goes to helping open source maintainers where the people who have to do a lot of that work, even if you're not demanding it of them, they still have to, you know, update things and turn on QFA and all those things. So I was curious, Dustin, do you have any opinions on the difference between security and sustainability? And what do you think about that? That's interesting. I mean, there is probably a balance between sustainability, at least as most people think about it, open source and like progress, because I think when people think about sustainability, they think about like something continuing to work forever. I still have my Python 2.7 app and it's like still running. And like, is it sustainable to like just throw that out there and let that keep running forever? Or do you have to slowly like evolve? And I think if we want to see open source ecosystems survive, there has to be some turnover, right? There has to be some you know, bits can rot, let them rot. And then as long as we have a practice that doesn't in introduce a lot of toil into the maintainer flow to like update and change and migrate and things like that, right? Like that should be a day-to-day -day thing. And so... I think about that a little bit when it comes to, in the security space, something like dependency upgrades. Is it sustainable to have a project where you don't have a good path to upgrading your dependencies? 
in reality, like, I feel like it should be a really easy process, right? Like you have your application, you have your dependencies and like once a day, once a week, whatever, like you get an update, you click a button and like, boom, you're on the latest version. And so you're sort of like very easily consuming those security updates. There's a lot of like ecosystem stuff that has to go around into making that happen, making that super easy. But yeah, if it's not easy, then that's not sustainable. Like you're not gonna be able to maintain that thing forever because it's gonna just, the older it gets, the more it's gonna fall apart, the harder it's gonna be to upgrade, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I think there's a balance there. I'm not sure about in, in other areas of security, but yeah, I think in terms of sustainability of like keeping open source up and running too, like, yeah, the funding is huge, right? Like making sure that places where there are gaps are getting filled, that we have the ecosystems support the projects where necessary, that there's a path to maintainers stepping down and giving away projects to foundations, like that kind of stuff. I think it's really important as well. What are you most excited about in terms of work going on in the next year or two? I think SigStore is super cool and I'm really excited to see it get integrated a lot more tightly into a bunch of open source stuff. Essentially, like, so like Pipekit has supported PGP signing for a very long time and no one effectively uses it. And it's essentially because there are some like systemic stuff about PGP that sort of make it really hard to use and also make it really challenging to have it, again, be sustainable, have it stick around and signatures exist forever and be usable forever. So I think SixStore, when I first saw it, I was like, whoa, this like completely solves this problem of having to maintain a public key forever. And this problem of associating identity with keys and building trust in those signatures. I could go into much more detail about that. I think it's probably too much for the podcast, but I'm super excited about SigStore. I'm, I'm very pro SigStore and obviously biased. My team works on it and we think it's super cool too, but there's been great reception across the ecosystems for it. And yeah, can't wait for it. Get more people to use it. Yeah, I think that what I've heard from a lot of developers is that it's modern. It's a modern tool chain. Whereas like pretty good encryption or, you know, PGP is just like kind of not that intuitive, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, I really hope SigStore continues to take off. It's going to make a big impact in the open source community in terms of security and assuring stakeholders that things are being done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very stoked for it. Dustin, this has been really great to have you. We are running up on time. So one of the questions I have is how can people learn more about Google's open source security team? Where can we learn all the juicy details? Yeah, we don't really have a super public presence. I would say, you know, obviously, you could reach out to me. I'd be happy to talk to you about it. I'm on Twitter, di underscore codes and elsewhere. Cool. Do you have a blog or anything as well for you personally? Yeah, it's very old though, but di.dev or di.codes is my personal website and has blogs, but also recent talks and presentations that I've given. And I kind of turn those into like, transcripts and slides that are kind of more enjoyable to read than watching me talk. So there's some good ones on there as well. Cool. Thank you so much for that. Nothing has been really awesome. This has been great. It's not over yet, though. At the very end of our show, we always have this big gold spotlight where we highlight developers, maintainers, projects that we think just need a little bit more light shed on them. So Justin Dorfman, what is your spotlight today? I use this new awesome software called Rewind.ai. And it like allows you to find anything you've seen, said, or heard. So if you type something in a Slack channel or Discord, or you said something on a Zoom call and you just search for it, it finds everything. So I uh, just got the invite yesterday and you need Mac OS with Apple Silicon. Everything's locally stored. It's pretty unreal. Like it's just imagine you just having this DVR of your 
life on your laptop and anything you need to look up, it just does. So props to the rewind.ai folks and yeah, check them out. I need that when I need it like recording ambient conversation that I'm having with people as well. It does. I always forget stuff. Yeah. It's like mind blowing. I'm like, hey, how could I do that? (laughs) This is amazing. And it's all local. That's the beauty. So like no IT policies or anything like that. You can just install it locally and go to town. That is cool. Gonna have to check that out. Thank you, Justin. My father's name is Jeff Huntley. Jeff's pretty much the main reason I decided on Twitter, mainly because like every day he sends a photo of like where he is in the world in his van. He lives in the Australian Outback with a van that has Starlink. And it's just been really fun over the past year or so that I've been paying more attention to just watch Jeff sort of just bounce around, be like, I have no cell service, but here I am with 100 megabits per second. It's so funny. He just posted one right before this podcast, like we're recording, like he's like 4G down, but my Starlink is up. <laughs> <laughs> now, like we've had him on this podcast before. He's I, a I great. Just wanted, he's I great. I want to give a shout out. He's just so awesome, and he's one of the developers who is currently very active, who also gives me joy. And so I'm just really grateful. He DMs me like the best DevRel hacks. Jeff, you rock. We got to have you on again. And if anyone wants to see him on a really cool podcast or slash show, it's Coffeezilla, and look up. Jeff Huntley, and you'll see his awesome segment. Thank you, Jeff, for existing. All right, Dustin, what's your folly today? Yeah, I sort of thought about this a little bit, and the prompt was kind of something that had an impact on your career or life. And I think kind of related to all the stuff we were just talking about, like the reason I'm here (laughs) and talking to you about open source security, working on open source, is probably because of the Mozilla Open Source Support Program. So we were just talking about funding. This is an awesome program that Mozilla ran that provided funding to open source projects. And PyPI was one of the recipients of this back when I was like kind of just getting started maintaining PyPI and I was also working at a software consultancy. So I convinced them to take on the PSF as a client and I did a bunch of paid work on PyPI and that's sort of how I got really deeply ingrained in PyPI and, uh, and maintainership of it. And yeah, it's changed a lot because like now I have deep knowledge of Python ecosystem and that sort of expanded into open source security and security and all that kind of stuff too. And it, it all kind of ballooned from there. So shout out Mozilla. Well, I was on the selection committee for that and I voted for that. And I will be sending this over to Mahan and the rest of the oh, Moss group. Rest in peace, Moss. We love you. Yeah, RAP Moss. Yeah, what a small world. That's so awesome. Thanks for the vote, Justin. Anytime, bro. Awesome. Dustin, again, thank you so much, listeners. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have, please like us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you sort of download and listen to it. Also, you can check us out online, sustainoss.org. We have a discourse there. You can go type comments about this podcast and let us know what you think. We also have a Slack. It's the Open Collective Slack because it seems to work pretty well. So feel free to jump into the Sustain channel there and throw live questions at us if you would like. If you have any emails you want to send, podcast at sustainoss.org. We'll get to all the hosts of this podcast and we'll be happy to listen to complaints, issues, queries, questions, and just thanks any of them, really. No one ever does this. So if you're listening, just sending like a period in an email would make me laugh a ton. So please go ahead and do that. You can reach Dustin on Twitter and the like. We'll also have his stuff in the show notes at podcastsustainoss.org. And just one final thank you so much, Dustin. This was great. And take care. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is super fun.